Welcome to the Be A Life Well Lived podcast. We explore the stories of people who may be like you. These are your neighbors, family members, and friends. The people you may think that you know, but you have never heard the details of their life story, their successes, failures, and the people who have influenced them. Be inspired by their passion to pursue their dreams and join me as we discover and learn from people who are the quiet, supportive presence in our world. So join the journey to create your individual path to have a life that is well lived. I would like to thank Dana Dre for being our guest on the podcast today. I'm really excited about the opportunity to speak with her about her life and her career. Dana is a veteran of the United States Armed Forces. She's served in two different distinctions, and she's also worked for the Veterans Administration, and she currently works for Metrolina Association of the Blind. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. This is very exciting. I am so tickled to get to talk to you about your life and all the the cool things you've done, Dana. You are the most interesting person to me. I'm just (laughs) like, I'm like intrigued by your life. Yeah, it's been a very interesting life. I mean, as, as this, I'm turning 50 this year, and with great reflection, um, I've really had some of the greatest experiences. It's been really an amazing life that I've I've had and, and had the you know opportunity to live and carve out. Um, and so, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for number one, my health. Number two opportunities, the things I've gotten to see, the things I've gotten to experience. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, you know, it's certainly it's not as interesting as it, well, it's interesting in different ways now. But <laughs> with kids, that changes, you know, it's still always interesting. It's just challenging in different aspects. Well, I have a question for you, and, and you might be able to relate to this. I turned 50 this year also. I turned 50 back in June. I realized when I hit 40, I was the point, I didn't go, I haven't been through a midlife crisis per se, but I noticed when I started hitting these milestone years since I turned 40, so 40 and 50, and probably will happen in 60 and 70 also, that I'm just more about reevaluating my life. And cutting out the things that don't give me joy and pleasure and making sure that I add in new things to try and do that will be a challenge and be fun and something, you know, that that I will definitely enjoy. Have you found that you look at your life that way at this point? Absolutely. I think that I always have looked at my life in the respects of where am I? Where am I going? And not in the traditional way. Um, I can remember when I moved to Charlotte, that was 15 years ago. So I was 35. I'm a goal setter, but I'm not like the check your goal every day kind of thing. So what I did is I had this list of goals when I got to Charlotte, uh, cause I had moved from Alaska. It's a long story. Um, I was like, okay, what do I want to do? And so I made this list of things that I wanted to do. And I promptly lost it. <laughs> like, you know, there's my list of things. Now it's gone, you know, out of my mind. Maybe I found it like seven years later. And I had not only accomplished all those goals, I had doubled some of them. Like I had had, I had two degrees by the time I was like, you know, like I, I wanted a child and things like that. So it's about, for me, it was where am I going? Um, because I constantly, as I'm able to still give back um, to communities and to our nation, um, and that's something that I want to do. But, you know, where am I? Where am I going? And absolutely, you know, who are those people and things, whether it be causes, that I'm taking with me? right now because you know I think really in reflection um, because I've celebrated my 50th year with good friends that I've had for 35 years now it's also 
really as important to me who I'm taking with me as my as my tribe. And yeah. um, absolutely, that tribe does get reevaluated for many different things. At the core of everything, I value that loyalty and that history. Yes, reflecting um, and looking on the good, really trying to figure out where where can I go with all the things that have carried me these decades to where I am. Dana, I loved what you said about having your tribe with you and people that have been with you for many, many years throughout your life. I've noticed as I've gone along that there are people that are meant to be in our lives for a season, for a specific purpose, for a specific reason, and they come and go. But there are also people that are meant to be in our life our entire life. And these people are the ones that are, the they document our lives. We document each other's lives together. We have a history together. They've known us way back when. They've watched our, our struggles and our triumphs and our growth as human beings. And it's a wonderful thing to have these type of people in our lives. Dana, I'm really interested in your childhood and where you grew up. And also because of your military service in our country, I'm curious if there's a history of military service in your family. So I grew up in a small town um, north of... Titusville, Florida. So if you're familiar where the space shuttle would launch in Florida, we got to see those shuttle launches um, from my front yard or the river near there of New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Um, For the most part, I lived my childhood on a farm. So most people don't think about Florida and farms, but we had animals of all varieties. So we had chickens, pigs, cows, hunting dogs, and we also had a garden. So it was really, my children now are in Montessori school, and I joke around and say that I had a Montessori, a true Montessori upbringing because we put everything that we learned into full effect by working the farm. You learn so much. So Small town in Florida, but right on the beach. So we had access to the river and fishing and shrimping. We would go vacation, and I'm going to put that in quotes, because (laughs) on vacation, I would go lobstering, lobster foiling in the Keys for 12 hours a day. I think what I'm trying to get at here is um, in my youth, I learned a really strong work work ethic. So yeah, I mean, you know, growing up and having access to a farm and the beach and the river, you really have nothing to want for except for snow. And I got that later on in life. And I'm sure that'll come up in another story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you talk about living on a farm in Florida, because you're right. That's not something that you would intuitively think would fit together. Are there specific type of products that you guys produced from your farm? Or was it just a family farm where you were just basically putting food on your ta- your own table, growing your own produce and, and living off your land as you needed to for the family? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, I and mean, I always say that and people are like, oh, you know, I mean, it felt like we were farming for a lot of people, but it was just for us. Um, the work that surrounded that at, at all levels, you know, as a young person just seemed so astronomical. And I wasn't really the only one working. I was the oldest child. So some, you know, I was kind of the manager from the start by de facto. But uh, no, that was a farm that... Uh, Essentially, um, my father was the only working person for for actual money wages. Of course, my mother worked because she took care of us and the farm and every other thing that she took care of. But because of that, and the fact that my father was really creative in making sure that we could make ends meet, that was just for us. Now, you know, 
the degree of meat that we got from some of the animals would be able to be sold to others or trade or whatever that they did to make sure that we had access to other things that we were missing, which wasn't much by rights in our farm. But yeah, we were our own little self-sufficient farm with benefits. And then again, you know, part of that self-sustainment was also being able to fish and shrimp and supplement that with seafood, which is, who can complain about that? Well, and not everybody has that option when they grow up on a farm to have seafood. lobster Christmas dinners because, you know, we would eat, of course, the day of the catch for lobster when we were in the Keys, but then later on, we'd be able to say, oh, that's right, you know, we'd have this Christmas feast of lobster and shrimp, so um, it was rather nice, And, and as a side note for that, one of the things that I've been grateful my entire life is for my health. I attribute, I mean, I know I have pretty good genes thanks to my family, but I attribute my health to all that fresh food that we had that wasn't processed or in a bag. We grew it, we plucked it. Now, you know, I can't count for all the uh, pesticide my father may have used on some of the product. <laughs> he was the kind of guy that would siphon gas out of a car. So, you know, I'll think yeah. all bets were off. But I do appreciate my access to that growing up because you know at now almost 50 years old I've never been in the hospital nor had a surgery oh that's wonderful all that fresh food probably has had something to do with it do you love to cook are you a chef yourself I, I do love to cook, but it's not one of my main hobbies um I appreciate food and I appreciate really good food but then I appreciate the simpler things in life, like even going back to growing up, all that farm food that we had. And I remember they call it the caviar of the South. Boiled peanuts was my favorite dish. So I I love love and appreciate really well-cooked food, but I also appreciate, you know, the basics, (laughs) like boiled peanuts. Um, (laughs) I'm not a cook. Um, I wish that I had gone that route some days, but it isn't something that I assign time with all my other things that I can focus on. When you were growing up, did you have any specific hobbies or interests that have translated throughout your entire life that you've held on to? Absolutely. Uh, my, my love for the outdoors was established when I was younger in all those activities and more, you know, with access to the water, then you had the ability to boat and ski and you know, all the other things that come along with having the ocean right there. Uh, so being outside is one of the things that has followed me. It has been my connection to the larger universe at times. I really like to just be outside and experience nature. And that's something that I've always done. And and across where I've lived, and I've lived a lot of places in the United States, but I've taken that with me. So for example, when I lived in Indiana, we would go hiking where the... where the caves were, you know, or or in Alaska and being able to hike and uh, be outside in those very grandiose places just allow me to connect, rejuvenate. So being outside has been my lifesaver in, in dealing with stress and just appreciation and gratitude. Nature is a wonderful healer of our mind, body, and soul. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned Alaska, and I wanted to uh, get to the point where we could talk about that. You ended up in Alaska as a part of your career. Tell me how you went from a small town farm girl in Florida to being in the military and ultimately being stationed in Alaska. 
Actually, a lot of you know, a lot of people do think that I was transferred there, but I actually joined the National Guard when I was there. And so, I'll tell you the story of going to Alaska. It's pretty fantastic. Starting in a small town, joined the military when I was seventeen years old, and went pretty much straight into the Desert Storm conflict. So. Um, I went to boot camp when I was 17. I turned 18 right afterwards. And at 18, pretty much, um, was on board a ship on my way to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And I spent about three and a half years in the military, including a stint in Desert Storm. So I have medals from that conflict area era. I decided afterwards that I didn't want to be in the military. I loved all the connection to the people, but I was young and I wasn't sure I wanted a career. I wanted to kind of see what the civilian side of things was like because, you know, I had made it out of Florida, which was one of my bigger aspirations before college. So that's why I joined the military. So when I got out, the military. I love Florida just as a sideline, but uh, I, I never wanted to live there again. It's too hot for my my taste. Thus, the move to Alaska, but we'll get to that. And so I moved to um, Evansville, Indiana on a whim. A lot of the things I had just never been, well, I'd really never been out of Florida, but decided that I was going to move to Evansville, Indiana with some of my other Navy buddies that got out of the military as well. And I stayed in Evansville for a while. I worked in hardware and software. So I did electronics in the military. When I came out, I took those skills into the work area and I did that. And then I would move back and forth between Evansville, Indiana and Louisville, Kentucky because our company at the time had offices in both spots. So I was bouncing back and forth in the Midwest there. You mentioned that you were trained in the military in a specific discipline or area and that that translated into the private sector for your career once you got out. How do you feel about military training in general, and did you feel adequately prepared to move into the private sector, or did you feel like you needed additional um, skill sets or training? Well, that's a great question, and I mean, the military prepares you for a lot of things, but let's think about it, you know, when I got out of the military, I was barely even 21 at that time, so there were a lot of life skills I was lacking. As far as the actual training, Um, The military trained, you know, electronics and the Navy in general has one of the best training programs and education in the military. People might argue with me on that, but I'll I'll say my case. So, you know, I was arguably more trained and better at what I did than some people that have been doing it for a long time because I had real world experience when we were underway when things would break and we'd have to figure it out or we wouldn't get communication or we wouldn't be able to find out where other boats were or whatever the situation was because we had this wide breadth of things that we were doing whether it be communication comms or you know at the time TTYs or computers that were the size of the office in your house that's how big they were at the time yeah, so we had a lot of opportunity to experiment. So coming out, I had the training, but I didn't have the life skills. As a 21-year-old, I wasn't ready to go into businesses and offices and deal with people that thought I was the secretary because women didn't do what I did <laughs> or um, you know, didn't know how to handle people when they were saying inappropriate things to me or things like that. So as far as the training goes, it was really great. Um, And teamwork, you know, all of those kind of concepts. I was just really very young when I came out. Dana, don't you feel that that some of the things that you experienced are 
kind of in a way a byproduct of what women of our generation have been through in the workplace. I, I you know, we, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, I dealt with some of those things also and didn't know how to deal with it. <laughs> and part of it, I think, is the shock factor at the time when things are happening, you're kind of in shock over it because you're just not expecting to be treated that way or to deal with those type of situations. Do you, do you feel like some of it was just a, a byproduct of what our generation went through? Because I think in a way we have a lot of women in our generation that have been barrier breakers in the workforce. Yes, absolutely. I think the difference is that we had the opportunity to be in that space because of all the individuals that came before us, right? right. Yes. And we got to land in that space. And, um, you know, for my part, I wasn't really dialed in on the fact that I was female and operating in this space. I was just trying to do my job. It was only later that I was taken aback by some of the straight up discrimination and in, in reflection at, yeah. at the time I was just trying to prove myself right you know I was working extra hard to to be able to say I was for, me, to, for my peers to recognize my value in that space right um, and that was the focus until later on when I had built that career capital to the point where I didn't care anymore. <laughs> and yeah. so in reflection, I could say, no, okay, all of this was a, it was the product of being female um, in a space that females weren't supposed to be there, according to most of the people we were working with. Exactly, yeah. I, I think there are a lot of career paths where women have dominated that space for a much longer period of time. But I think probably in the past 30 years, there have been a lot of new career paths that have opened up. And you're right, you might be the only woman in that particular company, in that particular position. And it's a whole new world learning how to navigate that those situations and yeah and i mean doing it at 21 versus doing it at 49 it's a whole different perspective you know i mean i was learning so much about who i was really wasn't reflecting at that time on some of the struggles now in hindsight that i know that i had and on the converse to that being able to brush off stuff that I might not be able to brush off now. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally get that. And and I think also, as you're older, you, you're kind of tuned in in some ways more aware of what's going on. I think your point about being focused on your career and trying to prove yourself and show your worth, that really is the focus you have when you're young. And as you go through time frame of learning your job, you become a little bit more relaxed in that aspect. And I think, I know this is true for myself, you become more aware of some of the other dynamics that are happening around you (laughs) that you may not have picked up on when you were young. (laughs) And you get to bring that experience with you. And, you know, in some senses, I believe it led to my my advocacy career as you know an advocate now for individuals with vision loss so part of that is understanding what it's like to be on the other side of that kind of discrimination both for me as a woman and a gay woman you know so yeah. i understand it from dual perspectives of what it means to be counted out for whatever reason or straight up discriminated against I'm curious how you ended up moving from Indiana down to the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And I guess I should ask, were there any other um, stops along the way? And how did your career change? So I actually 
Um, from Indiana, I moved back to Florida because my mom, she got sick with breast cancer. So my mom got breast cancer. I'm 49 now. She was 44 when she got breast cancer. And so I decided to go back home, help take care of her while this was going on. And so moved back to Florida and she uh, had a successful remission of her cancer. She's been in remission ever since. So she's completely healthy. So it was a successful outcome. But like I said before, I wasn't going to stay in Florida. And being in the military, I got the ability to um, have the GI Bill. It's one of the biggest perks of being in the military. And I hadn't used it by this point. And the time was ticking on that. So I had to really come up with a plan in order to use those benefits because it was one of the reasons I had joined the military is to go to college. So I used the GI Bill, but I also worked full-time, so I was able to save up a lot of money, and I ended up undergraduate from the University of Central Florida in criminal justice, because between you and I, I was just trying to get the fastest degree possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, right, I knew I needed an undergrad to get to where I wanted to go next, and so, so that, that saved up a bunch of money, and then... I didn't want to stay in Florida, so I was like, you know, I want to go on an adventure. I, I I haven't done something like that, and I'm not really the kind of person that wants to wait until retirement to live my life to the fullest I could live it. And so I decided that I would go to Alaska, and I moved to well, at the time I had moved to Alaska. I decided to go to Alaska and check it out during the summertime and see, but I had a lot of money saved, so I had flexibility in what I was going to do. So was it really kind of like a sightseeing, vacation, exploratory trip, all, check all of the above type yeah, of thing? I'm yeah, one, I'm going to camp during the summertime, and if I like it there, I'll see what happens, and if not, I'll pack up and you know, kind of go somewhere else. So yes, I mean, in that sense, it was. I got there and I, I, I fell in love with the place. It was an amazing, back to my outdoor connection, you know, I was really in my mecca of healing space. And, and so I stayed there. And then of course, you know, winter was impending and I knew I couldn't camp during the winter time. So I had to make a decision. And I decided that, you know, let me just see if I can go to work here. So I literally went around to businesses with my resume in my hand. And uh, lo and behold, one Icon Office Solutions hired me as one of their network engineers. And so, and this was probably one of the most incredible experiences. Got to fly into the villages of Alaska to work on their school systems. So this... The, the villages are poor, but the school systems have a lot of money. So I would go in and I would work on their hardware and software systems, whichever ones they needed me to work on. So I'd fly in. Typically, I, w- I would have to take three planes from Anchorage, Alaska. So I'd land into a smaller city, then another smaller city, and then a bush plane, which you would stop two and three times. So uh, one of the places I used to go a lot was called Shivak. And Shivak was on the western side, I mean, of Alaska, which is right abutted, I think they said about 30 miles across the Bering Strait to Russia. You know, I would either, if when I would travel outside of these places, I would either camp, so I would take my tent, or I would sleep in the home ec department of the school because it had, it was outfitted with showers and things like that. So I got to spend robust times in these Alaskan villages um, and experience their culture and you know, what they did day to day. So it was an amazing experience. I got to do that. I mean, I didn't do it all the time, but I did it for almost three and a half years uh, working there. Um, and then my grandmother got sick. And so yeah. my grandmother lives in Florida. I decided that I wanted to see my grandmother before she passed away. I gave away my job because they were laying people off. And I said, don't lay anybody else off. I will give, give up my job, give up all my things. And um, I was flying back to Florida. When I got to Florida, my grandmother had already died. She died when I was on the plane. Coming oh, home. no. So, um, you 
know, I ended up back in Florida with no plan again. And I didn't want to stay in Florida, so I decided that I would move to some place that that I could get home in a day, but not necessarily, you know, be so close. So Charlotte, North Carolina, had a very good friend that worked at one of the banks, and I I moved here 15 years ago. I'm I'm really interested about the town that you were in when you were in Alaska, because there was actually an exhibit at a museum I went to where a photographer had taken photographs of that town and they were projected up onto the wall and you felt like you were sitting on a log. You would sit down in a space and you felt like you were sitting down on a log watching. And I believe that's the Bering Strait. Is that correct? Yes, that's okay, right. okay. That's what I was thinking. And you were looking out over the water at the Bering Strait and the people, their dwellings, the dwellings that people had were such rustic um, yes. structures, very bare bones. And it had a feeling of cold. I guess is what I would say, and I and you could tell from the photo the photographs of the area Absolutely. that there was just this it constant struggle this of the people of against the elements and, and to survive. Did you with, feel any of that uh, when you were there? To be modern age with certain things, and but what I felt the most when in those Alaskan villages, no matter which one it was, because I went into a host of them, was the spirit of the Native Alaskan people and their ability to persist and sustain over time exactly what you said, in the face of the elements. And they do that by um, being resourceful and being with each other and I'll tell you they love outsiders because I remember well it was my mistake really what I did was I bought some of the native Alaskans candy in the candy store because that's the kind of person I am I'm just you know if you're nice to me then I'll buy you candy and um, word got out as I was making my way back to the school and the next thing you know, I have this trail of Native Alaskan children behind me. And I had, <laughs> and I had told them that my name, and they were like, this whole, I felt like I was at, like a rock star for the first time in life. Because it was like, Dana, 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 Dana. And, and I was just trying to get in the school because I didn't have enough money. Things there are really expensive to buy all the Native Alaskan children candy. But... You know, they, they have a real interest in what's happening outside of where they live. And, yeah. and there's not a lot of interaction. You know, planes come in there daily, but it's not the same as being able to step off into a big city and, and see, you know, all the sights. The conveniences are not there. Uh, that's an understatement. You know, I remember... Back then, you know, I would plan travel pretty well, but one of the things that was always difficult was food and being able and having shelf life. So I would have to buy things sometimes in the post office slash airport slash general store. And um, I bought a lean cuisine, and this was circa 1994 that was $7. Um, so, you know, it takes a lot of resources to get things amenities and that was an amenity there so you pay for them that's interesting i i'm even surprised that you were able to get your hands on a linguazine (laughs) (laughs) you were determined (laughs) (laughs) you were very determined (laughs) yeah you you mentioned about your grandmother dying and you were headed home because obviously you wanted that one final goodbye and you missed that opportunity. You know, when we think about people in our lives that are inspirational to us and the qualities that they have, obviously with you being willing to go to those links to say goodbye to her, was she one of the people in your life that was inspirational to you? Absolutely. 
she really was the core of the kindness that's that's in my heart. My mother as well, and my parents, but my paternal grandmother, Margaret, was very inspirational and in just a kind and gentle way. She created space for me to explore uh, and be who I was, and that was everything to me. And and so, yes, it was very much difficult for me when I landed in that plane because I really thought I would have the ability to say goodbye to her. Uh, and I never dreamt a million years when I had left to Alaska that that would be the last time that I would uh, be able to talk to her. And, yeah. and I didn't get a chance to tell her those things. That's really hard, isn't it? to miss that chance. Did you ever go back at a point in the future, maybe to her graveside and have that conversation, even though it might be one-sided just to tell her what she meant to you? I have actually. Yes. Well, this is kind of a side note and you may keep it in and you may keep it out. It's funny. When I got back to Florida, you know, because I grew up on that farm, we were essentially in the country of Florida. And my father told me that he he told me to get in the car, get in the truck, actually, and we're going to go for a drive. And he ended up in a lot of his side of the family. My grandmother was lived in kind of somewhere. So it was me show up at my great grandmother's gravesite. And my father pulls out a shovel from the back of the truck. And I was like, what is happening right now? (laughs) Well, my grandmother always said she wanted to be buried with her mother, but she didn't have a plot. There wasn't a plot next to my great grandmother's grave. So um, my father, my grandmother is cremated, by the way. Dug a hole and put her on top. That's where she is. Oh my goodness. And, I um, love the fact that he made sure that her wishes were taken care of. He did. And and at first I was taken aback, but then I thought the very same thing. And and now I get to visit them both at the same time. And yes, I have gone back and you know shared my heart space of the sorrow that I felt because I didn't get to say that goodbye in person but I know that she knows how much I loved her yeah and and that's all that really matters I mean it is still difficult for me but I really appreciate the fact that we had the relationship that we did and and so you know I have the gratitude for that because uh, I didn't know either one of my grandfathers my my paternal grandfather died when my father was 10 and my maternal grandfather died when I was three. So to have the relationships with my grandmother, my grandmothers, but mostly my paternal grandmother um, was very valuable to me. Yeah. You know, you've talked about the women in your family being an inspiration to you. Is there anyone that stands out in your career that you look back and you say, okay, this person is why I excelled in my career or why I made it through a tough time or why I'm good at what I do today. Is there is there anyone like that that you look back on? Yes. When I worked at the Department of Veterans Affairs, which I just left recently, I had a mentor. I came into the program under what's called the technical career field, which is a program where the VA identifies spaces that may be difficult to fill in disciplines and identifies people that can grow into those spots. And I was appointed under uh, David Hedrick. So he was a VIST visual impairment services team coordinator had the special privilege of learning everything about that position that I grew into in Charlotte from him. And I hadn't had anybody invest that much in me 
as far as a career goes in my entirety of my career. And, and so his investment in me and his time gave me the ability to really rise up quickly because he was very well known in the field and still is. Um, and so, you know, having access to that kind of experience and capital in a space, let alone a federal space, it really just, it gave me this turbo lift to get into a successful career path um, where I wouldn't have otherwise had that without him. And so I, he is, you know, accredited to my most recent, one of the biggest credits other than my wife and family to my most recent career path. Yeah. I think sometimes it's hard in the workforce as a younger person coming in to find someone who's willing to invest in you. Sometimes I feel like some people who have been there a while or are older maybe feel a little threatened at times by the younger people coming in. And so they really don't want to share their secrets, so to speak. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's talk about the the Veterans Administration, because you really have a heart for veterans, especially veterans with disabilities. And you've worked quite a bit with veterans who have lost their vision or are vision impaired. Tell me about what's, where your heart's at with that and what's that like for you? Oh, absolutely. I, I say, you know, um, that gift of being able to serve was the perfect combination between my passion, my skills and ability, and my experience. And the reason for that is many folds, but I, you know, I come from a military family. My maternal grandmother was a Marine in World War II. And my maternal grandfather was in the Navy. He was a Navy yeoman, and that's where they met. And my father was in the Army, and his father was also in the Army in World War II, and my father was in Vietnam. So, you know, I had that, along with my own military service, that military creed. And I hadn't reconnected with that in a way that made sense until I combined that advocacy because before I worked for the VA, I worked for services for the blind um, at the state. So I was advocating for individuals with vision loss and then got to be put in the position where I could do the same for for the the veterans. And so I got to reconnect with my veteran community. And in Charlotte, we have a very thriving veteran community. So it was this real witness of community working together to get great things done. Not to mention that I got to work with some of the greatest people ever. You know, the individuals that I served were amazing. World War II veterans, Korean veterans, Vietnam veterans, peacetime veterans, and combinations thereof. We had triple war veterans. And these are individuals that have had their share of the adversity in their life, but still press on even in the wake of losing their vision, whether it be later on in life or a blast injury. It was a gift to me to be able to to do that. And, and you know, a real calling for me to do more in order to leave. You know, that was one of the hardest things that I did in my career was leave a job that was secure working for the federal government, my father was like, are you insane? And then, you know, um, and, and where I left what I did, why would somebody do that? You know, for me, it was a calling to do more and to be able to impact more individuals. And, you know, that's what I'm in the midst of doing now with Metroline Association for the Blind. And, and that's been reiterated with my conversations with individuals that, don't have the same access to services that the veterans do. Um, They have a whole host of services that are available to them that help them mitigate their journey with vision loss. And, you know, 
my now forward facing people that I'm charged to assist and we all assist each other, you know, don't have the same resources. So how do we create that space for them to bring them up and lift them up? Dana, I would like to talk just a little bit about some of the services and um, things that veterans do have to help them. I don't think most people realize what kind of technology is out there today. And by that, I mean, I was able to attend the Panthers football game and you had those special, I call them goggles. I don't know what, I don't know what the technical term is for them, but they assisted the veterans that came in being able to be on site and watch the game. Can you talk about those and maybe some of the other technological advancements in equipment to help people who are blind? Absolutely. You know, the single, one of the single most uh, things that can assist people straight out of the box now are iOS devices because these devices both have um, speech input. You can tell it what to do with your voice and then voiceover, which means it's giving speech back to you. So we call the iPhone the Swiss Army knife uh, for vision loss. It doesn't work for everyone, but it you know, this technology that we all share is now available to individuals with vision loss and other individuals with other different varying kinds of abilities. But um, some of the newer things that are coming out are the, what we call wearable technologies. And the wearable technologies can be anything from, like, if you're doing virtual reality and you're wearing a phone in front of you, it takes the camera output or input and outputs it to the screen and magnifies it so that you can um, see things in real time. Now, side note to this, we're not talking about movement at this point because moving and having magnification will do a number on your vestibular system. <laughs> and so, but being able to have, you know, the ability to, to magnify things and, and wear this device and, and see things larger. Then you have different kind of service protocols where let's say you're wearing a pair of glasses and you can put a camera in, um, there's a program that has an agent that you can actually dial into that sees exactly what you're seeing and help walk you through whatever steps or skills or, um, you know, thing that you need done. And then there's another set where you can actually take a picture. Let's say it's written material. You can point your finger at it and it'll take a picture of whatever printed text you're looking at or pictures and stuff like that and read it back into uh, your ear using um, like a earbud technology. So, you know, there's a whole host of wearable technologies. It's changing all the time. Um, but yes, it's opening up great doors for individuals with vision loss to be able to do things without these bulky devices. It's just amazing everything that's out there now. And for veterans, is there obviously medical funding and federal funding to help them acquire these things? Um, if you're a veteran with a vision loss, then and you can get VA services. So if you are eligible for VA services and a veteran with a vision loss, then you're likely the VA will purchase these items for you. Yeah. So um, we, I was able to, you know, provide my veterans with a whole host of technology. I mean, our, our facility was very much known for being able to provide individuals with these tools. You know, we, they had to make sure they assessed properly and it fit their goals. We established goals. But yes, these devices were provided and, um, you know, a lot of the time the maintenance up kept on them um, by the federal government. Tell me a little bit about working with them, not just, not just the challenges of dealing with their sight loss or their vision loss, but 
there's got to be an emotional aspect to what they're going through that affects them. I guess, how did you navigate that? How did you, what did you learn from that that helped you to be there for them or be more present there for them or help them, you know, get through this situation of vision loss? That's a great question, and I I really think it comes down to relationships. One of the things that I was able to do because of my own military service was meet these individuals no matter where they were um, in a common space. So, you know, I, I used to say I had street cred because of my veteran status. And then it was more about because, you know, being a visual impairment services team, the VIST coordinator, you are a lifetime case manager. So it's more about learning about that individual. What what are what's that individual's aspirations? What are their you know, what keeps them up at night? Um, you know, where are they with their journey, with their adjustment to their vision loss? And, and asking hard questions, but you can't ask those hard questions until you've built that rapport with individuals and understand them as a complete whole person. And so the success that we had in the adjustment to vision loss realm had nothing to do with me. It had to do with me seeing that, you know, those relationships and that community, that's really at the end of the day, one of the things that is the most important because leaning on each other and connecting them to each other in the highest degree possible, whether that be going bowling together or, you know, sitting and crying in a support group um, or anything in between was the greatest way for them to have more strength in that journey because there's no magic bullets in, um, in helping somebody through their healing process. It's a series of day-to-day and then just putting in there those supports that can carry people along when they're having one of those really bad ones. I don't know how else to say it, but it's just this incredible sweetness of you as a person to recognize that these people are going through such trauma and just to be there, just to be with them and be there. That's amazing. Um, What skill when it comes to administration do you think is in your back pocket right now that, that you are able to utilize in the change from working at the Veterans Administration to working at Metro Line Association of the Blind? I'll have to go back to that relationship, um, you know, in making that kind of transition or even pivot. Um, you know, I didn't. I have lots of varied, varied experience over many different areas, including you know, helping create nonprofits, serving on boards, all of those kind of things. Um, but I don't know what I don't know. And so in bringing with me all of the connections that I've made over the many years, now 15 that I've been in Charlotte, whether it be through the LGBTQ community, the visually impaired community, the veteran community, being able to um, you know, look at higher level partnerships and being able to ask and reach out for help when something doesn't make sense or it's way foreign to me. So, you know, I mean, it's not necessarily an administrative piece, but it's really the secret sauce when it comes to things to me to, you know, Charlotte is a very vibrant community that is growing and connecting and um, to be able to tap into that. Um, you know, I've done it before, and even with, um, you know, other resources like the Delta Gammas, the magic happens when you um, really have faith in that community, reach out and utilize all those past relationships like we 
when we started talking about my 25-year-old friendships and now my 15-year-old relationships in the community, those are where the power is. Those are where we get solutions to me at the end of the day. Yeah. There's a support system there that it takes time to build. And, it, and um, yeah. But it can get you something immediately. So let's say, you know, I wanted to talk to somebody about a grant that we're seeking. Now I am, you know, not even seven degrees of Kevin Bacon away from someone. I can ask one person and, and now I'm talking to a key person that can help me understand what the provisions of this are. Um, so, you know, that to me is as valuable as any other administrative tool. I can see that. Not just resources, but fast resources. So, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when you think about the path you're on, and obviously at 50, you're probably thinking at this point in terms of, okay, I've got X number of years left in the workforce. You know, we all all start thinking about retirement sooner or later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) Maybe not not sitting down retirement, but maybe moving on to other things type of retirement. (laughs) Yeah. What's in your future? Have you looked that far ahead? I know you said that you set goals, but you don't necessarily look at them every day, but I'm sure there's something in the back of your mind or in your heart that you're like saying, okay, I would really like to do this before I'm off this planet. Yeah. Well, you know me too well. Just yeah. a, a short interview, but yes, my aspirations have been, and, and there's been many reasons that I haven't officially turned down this path because I, I have done it before but my aspiration is to, to get my PhD and to teach you know I want to shut down the, the later years of my career as a teacher and you know, whether that be in research or you know what specific area I'm not absolutely sure but my plan would be to get my PhD because I've worked full-time for both my master's degree so I think I can do that while still working and then carve out a space for you know research that's going to be impactful whether it be in the vision loss community yet and technology is one of the things that it has carried me through my career but I'm also very interested in suicide prevention for veterans so one of those spaces or a combination of to be able to you know, explore that using all the experience that I've had along the way. I think that's perfect. And I hope you and I hope you're able I'm hope I'm really rooting for you. I hope you're able to get every everything done. Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, at the end of the day I'll be the real Dr. Dre. So that's one reason to do it. I think that's that's great. <laughs> that that right the coolness factor alone is yeah. <laughs> Talk about street cred. There you go, right there. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit, Dana, about your family life and your children? Do you want to touch on anything to do with experiences um, you've had with, you know, your openness about being a gay woman? Do you want to touch on any of that? Share from your heart anything you'd like to say about any of those topics. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think my journey with my sexual orientation has been a, a long one. And it's it's not the same as the adjustment to vision loss. You know, it's, it's not a disease or something that's happening to me, but it's certainly a process of um, unlearning things that you learned. Um, you know, I, I grew up where being gay wasn't okay. And then I went into the military, and at that point, um, don't ask, don't tell, was pretty prevalent and so you know I lived at the beginning of my years in not out about who I was and it was really only until I met my now wife and I met her about 15 years ago and um you know that she allowed me that space 
um, gave me, helped me through with strength for me to be more comfortable who I was, with who I was. And so, you know, I, almost all of my current success to her and meeting her and being able to um, have somebody that had your back to give you the space to, to go to school and to su- help support you and help be there for you when you didn't think you could make it through the middle of the semester. And then, you know, deciding to have children was a big step as well. And, you know, now I have a going to be 12 year old and going to be 10 year old. <laughs> and they're amazing human beings so you know to be able to have this journey and to share in all this love and all this passion and and just appreciate um the journey that we've been on because it's not always been easy it's not been at the forefront of you know what i advocate for i've always advocated on my behalf but you know, it has been a big part of defining who I am currently. You know, my wife and my family, my two children, Margo and Miller, are a huge part of that. When you look back at your childhood and your family growing up, and then you see, you know, your children, what qualities do you want them to have as they become adults? I mean, one of the biggest qualities I think that has helped me along the way is curiosity. And and not in a forward, questioning everything kind of way, but why are things the way that they are? Why are people the way that they are? Why um, you know, are these things happening? And asking those questions. So I think curiosity is a huge one. Kindness is, um, you know, that's non-negotiable. We yeah. are, you know, we, we have to carry kindness with us. And, and, you know, I think people are kind spirited and it's cultivating that back in times when it's not as easy to be kind, you know. Um, so curiosity, kindness, wonder, you know, which is connected to curiosity. And then aspirations to do something in the community. I've always been a community-minded person. My wife is a community-minded person. So we don't ask them what they're going to be when they grow up. We ask them what problem they're going to help solve. Oh, I love that. Yeah, we really just go back to there are a lot of issues in the world and need to make your journey all about that. But even... You know, when I was working in the technical field, I was solving problems for individuals. So, you know, framing it from that way and then extrapolating that out into the bigger picture. And then just a word they view, you know, we've had au pairs that have helped raise them from other countries. We want them to know that there's a big world out there. Just go out and experience it. Wow, you're teaching your kids to be global activists there, Dana. (laughs) Global citizens, yeah, solving the problems of the world. (laughs) No pressure, right? No pressure, no. (laughs) But you know, that's important. You know, I've talked to several different um, people that I've interviewed and even friends throughout my life about how we end up in our own little silos of life and information and knowledge and that's not bad that's not all bad it's good to have have that and be rooted and grounded in who you are but there's something to be said for realizing that hey there's a much bigger world out there than what I've experienced just in my little microcosm and so I love it that you are kind of giving your children that uh, that bigger exposure I wish more kids had that I think that there would be they would be a lot less likely as adults to be so judgmental towards others and so and so quick to appraise think appraise a situation 
in error, so to speak, <laughs> because they just, they just don't understand things. And so, yeah. So I love it that you're wanting your kids to have, have a bigger view of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Dana, I have really appreciated you being on the podcast today and having the opportunity to talk with you. It's been wonderful. And I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors as you move forward in your new career path and also just with your family and your life. Thank you so much. This has been a great experience and I appreciate being on this we I expect great things. I expect to hear great things. <laughs> yeah, and from your kids too. <laughs> For more information about this podcast and our guests, you can go to BeALifeWellLived.com. Check out our online magazine, Be Inspired. Like our Facebook page. Follow us on Instagram and listen to our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Google Play.